And then I got a new boss whose name is Bill McGuire, who was the CIO. Bill McGuire, one of the best leaders ever. And being very driven, but having the right level of empathy to create motivation. It's very hard for me to describe. I always felt that with him, I don't have to worry about anything except doing a phenomenal job. This is the Indianness podcast, stories of success from leaders and change makers of Indian origin. Why have Indians achieved success across so many different disciplines around the globe? I have no idea, but let's find out together because every story is unique. I'm very excited to have Ravi Simhan Bakla with us today. He's the Executive Vice President, Chief Digital and Innovation Officer for Avis Budget Group, a global car rental company. He's also served as the Chief Information Officer for Virgin America, Vice President of Information Technology for Tesla, and Chief Technology Officer for Aer Lingus and United Airlines. I invited him on this show as I was fascinated to hear about his journey, having led technologies for cars and planes, and not yet trains, but also having worked for two of the most charismatic and controversial leaders in the business world, Richard Branson and Elon Musk. Welcome, Ravi. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on our podcast. Thank you very much, Sanjay. I really appreciate you having me. Great, Ravi. As we try to really find what drives people like you and so that we have folks who are looking to be inspired, following the journey. And a lot of it has to do with the things that define you. So maybe we start from the beginning. Can you just walk us right from the time, where were you born, a little bit about your parents and your siblings and things like that? Just tell us a little bit about yourself. Certainly. So of course, I'm from India. My roots are from the south of India, from Andhra Pradesh. I was born in 1967 in Adhabad, which used to be in Uttar Pradesh, and now, of course, all the names have changed. I have one older brother who will always be two years older than me. That never changed. That's a constant. My mother was a stay-at-home mom for her entire life, and my dad was in the Indian government, and he started his career in the Indian Railways Account Service, and then he went on to being the railway board. And then he finally ended up his career as Joint Secretary in the Ministry of Food and Civil Supplies in Delhi. Then he took voluntary retirement and he joined the World Bank as a senior financial advisor to different nations in Africa. So, you know, over the years, at least in India, our journey as a family, because my father was in the railways, we would spend a couple of years in Vishakhapatnam, a couple of years in Guwahati, the Assam side of the house a number of years in Harbad until we finally kind of settled in on Delhi, in New Delhi, which to me is still the best city in the entire world. And uh, that's where I grew up. My brother and I both went to school in Delhi. We went to a school known as Modern School, and we did our entire education there right from kindergarten through the 12th grade. So Modern School in Umayi Road and Modern School in Barakambarun. And there on, my brother went on to do his uh, bachelor's degree in Institute of Technology in Madras, or now Chennai. And uh, I decided to take some computing classes immediately after school and before college. So I spent an entire year learning how to write code. This is circa in 1985, October onwards, way back down memory lane. And then I decided to come to the United States, you know, to start my bachelor's education. 
And so that was my initial journey. And here we are, 36 something odd years later. Wow. So you were a kid who was moving around because of your dad being in railways. And we've had a lot of guests who talk about that. You know, those are different environments, new schools, new friends, sometimes leaving behind new friends or old friends. How was that experience? Because either you adapt fast or you get left behind. Were you able to adapt fast? I think so. It's a question that I'll actually ask my parents, particularly my mother, because she had to deal with me more than my dad had to deal with me. And her estimation of how I managed to cope with change is that I was incredibly mischievous and I would always find the most mischievous new person to play with and to become friends with. And when you're a young kid and you get into stuff, you find someone who actually gets into that stuff better than you, who can teach you. And so for me, it was always about fun. When I look back at my life now, uh, since I was a kid, I've been moving around everywhere. You know, I've lived and worked in multiple continents. And it has all come down to one thing. I love being around people. And I really soak in the fun of learning from new people and gaining new experiences. So I guess that's how I seem to cope. Now, if you ask me truly if I cope or not, I really don't know. Uh, what I can tell you is that my family and I are very happy. So it, we must be doing something right. I think you must be doing something very right. Now, for people who maybe don't have an idea clearly is going from Allahabad to the Northeast to Delhi, I mean, kind of you would view them as different countries in many cases if you were talking in terms of language, culture, friends. And as you said, you were a kid from the South who ended up in modern school for people who don't know Delhi, one of the best. There's a rivalry between modern and DPS from what I understand. I'm not from Delhi, but how was that experience at modern for you and your brother? It was fantastic. Just to set the record straight on modern versus DPS, DPS actually never competed with us. They could never compete with us, and they still cannot compete with us. So to all your listeners, keep trying. If you're from DPS, you will not win, you know. It was admittedly difficult. So my father was, and now he's retired, a very honest government official. And as anybody who's been in India and who's government and they're honest, will know that economically it was never a great thing. So I remember distinctly when my father was in the Indian Railways Account Service, he went on a mission to USSR. At that time, it was the USSR. And this was during summer. And my mother, who was very ambitious for my brother and I, while my dad was gone on his government mission, she had us admitted into modern school. So my brother and I took the tests, the entrance test. Apparently, we aced it. And consequently, we got admitted. So my mother, while my dad was in the USSR on the government business, she had us admitted into what was an incredibly extensive school for a government official. So my mother still recalls this, the scene in the house the day my dad returned from mission. And, you know, once my brother and I got our hands on all the toys that he brought for us, I remember uh, she tells me she remembers that she told him and all he could do was find the chair and put his head in his hands and says, how are we going to pay for this? And my mom said, don't really care. We have to pay for this in the honest way. Just so you know, that kind of thought stayed with me forever because we have two grown-up daughters now, 23 and 19, and they both went to phenomenal universities. My younger daughter is still at a great place at Boston University. 
And it's the same concepts that don't really care. They have to have the best education. So it was difficult in the beginning to cope, but I was always into sports. I played, you know, sports, whether you're doing cricket or football or cocoa or badminton or kabaddi, you make friends. And that friendship really helped carry me forward. And of course, I'd also say my parents, you know, I can never deny the incredible, I would say, support our parents gave my brother and I to transition through all these changes that we had. So even when we were young, whilst economically we were really, I would say, downtrodden, the happiness level was pretty high. So that's what allowed us to cope. And for us, education, as most Indians who are here now, education is what gives you escape velocity from where you are to where you could be. And so that was of extreme importance in my household. My brother and I both kind of used that as our backdrop to get to where we are today. And of course, family, friends, mentors, ex-bosses, you bring all of them together and you know, it's all sort of good, happy story. Escape velocity, that's a fantastic term. If it's okay with you, if you're not copyrighted, I might use that in the future. But I think that's a great term, escape velocity, because getting from where you are to where you aspire to go to. But coming down to your mom, what gave her that ambition that I wanted my kids in modern school? As I said, for non-Deliites, it's an aspirational, it's a very tough school to get to where the creme de la creme go in Delhi or used to go. I, I don't know what now, but just she wanted something better for her kids. Is that what it was? Yes, it was. But also her father, my grandfather, he did his medicine and his FRCS in, in England, in Scotland, University of Edinburgh many eons ago. And he came back to India to practice. And he practiced in a little town called Jaipur in Orissa. And he was, for all matters and purposes, the king's physician at that time. And so my mother grew up in a family where everyone was super well-educated, all her brothers, sisters. And she saw how education can create new opportunities for everyone. And incredibly, none of my mother's siblings ever went into medicine. So they all chose different fields like engineering, business, human resources, what have you. So, you know, she was ultra ambitious right then and there. And she saw around her, I think she was a far more clairvoyant about the value of education to young people than my dad would have been at that time. Also, my mom was and is still, you know, I would say pretty radical for someone who was born in 1941. She introduced my brother and I to the Beatles she used to make us sing songs by the Beatles, you know, and record them. When she was younger, she listens to Pink Floyd. I mean, Deep Purple. So she's just a very different breed. And a lot of that push really came from her to get my brother and I situated in a way that we would succeed in life. And even today, you know, I speak to my parents every morning without fail. And yeah, they're in India. They're older. My dad's 19. My mother's 82. And, you know, I just want to speak to them every day. And even today, she says, make sure you work hard. Do the right thing. Make sure your children are working hard. Make sure they're getting educated well. Now, where the genesis of that feeling for her, I really truly do not know. I don't think she knows either. But what I do know, it is deeply embedded in her. And so she and my, my dad also valued education over everything. And it certainly has paid dividends. I think I like her. Pink Floyd, one of my all-time favorites, A Brick Against the Wall. but. That's a topic for another podcast, but that's a pretty incredible that she was having you listen to Lennon and everybody else. 
But you also touched something, Ravi, about sports, because that's also something a lot of our guests have talked about. Do you believe your participating in sports was helpful in whether it was, it, people say it teaches teamwork or competitiveness. What do you think? You said whether you were good at it or not, but you got yourself involved in sports. Was that helpful? What drove you to that? Or making friends? Yeah, it starts off with making friends, right? But then when you are a skinny kid who has boundless energy, the only way your mother can ensure that you eat and sleep well at night and you study hard is if you burn your energy in the right way. I used to always play, much to her chagrin, because she used to say, hey, you need to be spending more time studying than playing. But to me, that enjoyment, the social connection I made playing sports when I was young, whether it was badminton or football, cricket or hockey, I played hockey three years for my school team, the modern school senior team. You know, it really makes you want to fight and win, but fight and win together and lead and be led. And so you understand all these dimensions that make, you know, kind of start forming the personality that you have. And so you start to understand the dynamics of how to truly work with other people in these constructs where the eventual goal is to win, right? And so, and winning can be many, many, many things, right? It's just not a single dimensional element, in my opinion. My big win from that is that it allowed me to enjoy my youth tremendously. All those days and evenings with my friends and I used to be in the cricket pitch, just slugging it out, making fun of each other, but becoming best friends. My closest friends from India are still my closest friends. They still are. You know, it's just, I grew up with them. And the sports are what brought us together. But it's not just sports. It's sports, music, families, and just the social structure that we all lived in. We grew up very lucky. Very lucky. We didn't have much in terms of money, but we had a phenomenal social setting that everyone's parents created for us. It was very nurturing, very friendly, and very caring. And you pick up that and hope to pass it on. Yeah, you think that had a lot to do with who you are today? Absolutely. The credit all goes to the people who I was surrounded by, whether it's my parents, my brother. My brother's pretty cool. He's a lot more serious than I am, but he's really cool. He's really smart, and we get along like a house on fire. My friends, Amit and Girish and Pavan and Anjali, and all these people, I stood there very close to me, and they certainly had a very a deep, I would say, influence on my life. And, you know, I hold that very close. Indeed, one of my closest friends, a guy named uh, Yogesh Prasher, this is a very interesting story. So he and I were the best and the tightest friends in modern school, sixth grade onwards. And in the 10th grade, his father and family basically got up and left the country. He was in the United Nations. And so Yogi and I lost touch in the 10th grade. So we were so close and all of a sudden, after one summer, he wasn't there. And it was pretty shattering. But when you're young, you don't really understand that. As much as you start understanding when you grow older, fast forward to 2008. Okay, this is about 1982, 83 to 2008. I was working in San Francisco Bay Area, and I just the thought just came, man, what is Yogesh Prasha doing? And at that time, if you remember, LinkedIn had just become the big thing. Everyone's getting connected. So I said, let's just sign. And I found Yogi. And we lived in Sunnyvale, in the Bay Area. And Yogi and his family lived in Dublin, in California. And I was just, I was 
completely flabbergasted. Well, I reached out to him. We met the weekend after. It was like we never missed a beat. All those years, we never missed a beat. His wife, Mansi, and my wife, Shalvi, have become the best and closest of friends. The children all are close to each other. And we rekindled that friendship. And now we're the, the fastest friends. In fact, very recently, I was in the Bay Area. And I met Yogi and his younger brother, Vikram. And we had a blast. So we keep in touch. But again, the reason I bring all this up is it is always good to maintain those roots of people who really gave you happiness when you were young. And if you're able to maintain those relationships, you know, you may not have much, but life is still very nice. So maintaining relationship with people who were there with you in the roots who brought you happiness. I think that's a excellent, excellent point. Yogi seems like a fascinating person. So after modern, where did your journey take you? Your brother obviously went to Chennai. Where did you go? Yeah. You know, after modern, as I said, I took some time off. I joined this little computer classes off of IIT Gate in Delhi, near the Ring Road, called Informatics Computer Systems. And there I learned basic, well, I already knew basically my father had bought us a Sinclair ZX Spectrum computer some time back, but that's where I really learned it on BBC computers. And so it was all about basic programming. This is mid-80s. And I love, I just fell in love with it. I just somehow I made the connection that I could be a nerd and I could get the machine to talk back to me and do my bidding. And the interest blossomed very, very quickly. And while I was there, after a few months, they actually first they started having me grade answer sheets because I was good at it, good at computing. And after a few more months, they had me start teaching classes. And this is a kid who just finished school, a zero college education. But an aptitude for computers, though. Yeah, I mean, it was just, it's happenstance. I would have never known otherwise. And this again, you know, unfortunately, I lost touch with this guy many, many years ago. But he is the guy who said, Ronnie, just come with me. Try it out. It'll be fun. Try it out. And I took, I just listened to him. And there you go. And if he had not been, you might have gone in a different direction. Sometimes we never know. You never know. In fact, I might have not been in any direction. My entire life might have been, you know, not much to account for, right? So again, I'm very thankful. You know, it's like at the same time, I think what makes me happy about me is that, you know, I'm not averse to taking risks. So I have a very wide aperture in things I can accept. So I try to do these things. So I went to ICS. And then my parents looked at me, you know, that's a playing computer games is no dad. <laughs> but my parents are very, very supportive, along with uh, my dad and mom. And my dad's younger brother, who's no longer with us, has to plan to send me to America. And nobody knew anything about America. All I had was a passport. So I applied for I remember those days, I was, we used to go to, there's some American foundation where you could go and you would get this big, thick book of colleges you could apply to. I had no help. So I took the SATs. I feel I did pretty well. I don't remember, but I did pretty well. And the TOEFL, the test of English is a foreign language. And then I went to this place where I looked at all the universities that I would be able to apply to that had computer science or management of information systems as a degree offering. And I selected one. I got admitted many, but I selected one called RIT in upstate New York and for computer science and management of information systems. So I came here. Funny story. My parents or I did not know anybody in this country, not a soul. From Delhi to Rochester. Delhi to Rochester, right? From the summers of India to the 
incredible movement <laughs> upstate New York. And I remember I landed in JFK. I had flown. I had had air travel before that, but I had never been to the U.S. I landed in JFK. And that time, I believe it was the Port Authority that used to open your bags and, you know, they used to look at the stuff and look for any contraband or anything. And I couldn't understand a word the police officer was saying, and he could not understand a word of what I was saying. That's how far I was from reality. But I managed to get through <laughs> Flew to Rochester. It was a great experience in many ways because I saw the potential of computing. But it was also a poor experience in many ways because the one thing is that, so when you talk about the Indianness podcast, Sanjay, what makes me feel very happy is Indian faces and Indian food, right? I love to be close to my community. And there was, barring one guy, there was nobody else or maybe a couple. But that has changed probably now. Oh, it's completely changed. Now you have to struggle to find other people. But this is, you know, in 86. And also, I did not anticipate how cool it would be. I was just not prepared. And not being prepared and having such a radical shift in your living environment, I was sick for most of the year. Physically sick. Physically. So I didn't do very well in college because I just couldn't pay attention. And I became despondent. You know, it's like uh, you're 18 and... You have a lot of josh in your veins running, but you can't do anything because you are in a completely different world and you don't have a support system that's close to you. Spoke a lot, spoke to my dad, my parents and all, and I didn't do well in college. And it was just like, it was not going to be something that I could continue doing because it was just not going to work. So I transferred to England, which was great because every corner had a phenomenal Indian restaurant and it was more temperate. And there were millions more familiar faces. So I fit right in. And I went to a place called Richmond College in London for computer science. Fast forward three years from there, graduated. It was really funny. I won the, the graduating medal for the best performance in the computer science division. And I was shocked because I didn't expect it. <laughs> the first year was difficult because, again, I had to recover from a very difficult year at RIT. But subsequent years, I did really well. And that's what the dean of the department also noted. So it was great. And the real fun story about this is that I got the award and it was in videotape. I have a videotape of it. So I told my dad and mom, dad, I got an award for this. My dad says, there's just no way. <laughs> he did not believe me because this was a case where past performance is a good indicator of future. Future. <laughs> <laughs> I played it back and he was so proud. The videotape is with me now, but my dad had it burnt onto CD-ROM. I don't know if you, if you remember those days where you can work a videotape to that. So uh, it was great. So my education journey went there. I finished in Richmond. I got a job about three days before I graduated. So I took that job up and I never looked back. So just coming to Rochester, that was a tough year for you, right? The weather, maybe... A short days, not as much sun, the food, etc. I mean, obviously, it impacts you mentally. So was it your decision that you wanted to switch? Or how did you pull yourself out of that situation? Because that must have been a, one of your tougher, because modern was a cool situation. This was uh, a little different for you, a tough time, right? It was an incredibly tough time. Physically, mentally, in every way. Yeah, mentally. So basically, you know, you're young, you wake up pretty quick. It's just the, the mental pressure, right? Is hey, you've come all this way, you're not doing very well. 
spending money that you don't have. It's spending money that you don't have. But that's, I guess that's the American financial system anyway. So I was already familiar with that. But I, my parents and my brother, they really supported me through this. They gave me a lot of, I would say, mental and moral support because they all knew that I had this in me. And it's the old adage of putting a square peg in a round hole. You can do your best, but it simply will not yield the results you're looking for. So they helped me through it. And they supported me in my decisions. And again, my mother played a pivotal role here. Just doesn't give up. Doesn't give up. She, on the one hand, she would push me and hold me accountable. But on the flip side, for the rest of the world, she would not let the rest of the world attack me. Pushing and nurturing at the same time. Yeah, at time. the same time. And of course, my dad also helped, but he was busy working and, you know, making a living for the family. So there's only so much time and space he had to deal with me. But it was my mom. And she really, really helped. My brother really, really helped. I mean, so again, having strong family bonds and being able to seek help, you know. That's the one thing I've learned pretty early on is that when you need help, just ask for it. Because there are a lot of people around you who will happily give it to you. Don't try and fight everything on your own because I think the one thing that none of us have control over is time. And as time, you know, it's a vector that only moves in one direction. So you need to just take help. So I got help from my family. There was no pressure that, hey, stick it out in RIT, things will get better. No, nothing like that. Because like, they could see, right, where I was. <laughs> so, and also, like I said, they knew my capability and my potential. And think about it. Had they said, stick it out there compared to, you know, okay, you should do this. I probably would not have been here. Yeah. You know? That's true. So whatever push they gave me at that stage of my life actually worked tremendously to my benefit. When I go back and peel the layers of my career and, and life, those are some of the most pivotal moments. Yeah. I mean, that... The guy who took you to that computer class, I can see at least two, and I'm sure there are others. So two pivotal moments, joining up modern school was another pivotal moment. So then how did you end up back in the U.S.? You were in Richmond, you got a job. Yeah, it's a very simple story there, Sanjay. Is I worked at this company, American Shoot Foreign Study, for I think two and a half years. Okay. And at that point... I had gotten into a post-grad program in, in a university, and my goal was to go there. My parents were also returning back to India after my dad had stayed in Africa. I, I says I said he joined the World Bank. At that very time, my brother was doing his PhD in Akron, Ohio. So I thought this was the best opportunity for me to go back with my go back home to India, be with my parents, help them settle in. And my goal was to go back to India and find a job. That was it. I was it was very simplistic. And all of that happened. I was in Bangalore and I joined a company called Wipro Systems. They had nominal experience with them. I owe a lot to that experience in MG Road in Bangalore. And it was with the express promise that they would not send me out again. It was just, you know, that was my core requirement. It was very unlike what other young people of my age wanted to do it in Bangalore. They all wanted to I wanted to stay in India because my parents were over there and I needed to plant some roots. They said, yes, of course. And within three months, I was shipped off to Dublin, Ireland. <laughs> so, so on a second month, you know, so Wipro Systems had a, a really important partnership with GE Information Services that used to be in Brockton, Maryland. The company's no more. And so I was sent as a senior software engineer to help all of these programs. 
And the management team of G Information Services took a real liking to me. So they had, after a year and a half in Dublin, they had me transfer to Rockwell, Maryland, again, Vipro. And so that was nice. And that was in 94. 1996 is when we got married. So Savi and I got married in Bangalore, and we moved to Rockwell, Maryland. And I remember that winter, I believe, we visited California. My brother was in the Bay Area. And then we looked at California. That winter, the next spring, I don't quite remember. It's been a long time. In any case, we visited the Bay Area. And it's, my head is just going, what? 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 It's so nice. It's so beautiful. So we were awestruck. And that's the moment Savi and I decided, okay, we've got to move. I've got to move to the Bay Area. And we did. In 1997, I joined a, a database company named Sybase in Emeryville. I mean, I had a great time there. The amazing thing that Savi and I did is we actually drove from Maryland to the Bay Area. Best time of our lives. Saw the whole country. Saw the whole country. We had the whole country see us too. We went through Wyoming and I guess Dakotas, I believe, in Montana, where they probably had never seen someone look like us. But people were always very nice, always very kind, welcoming, accommodating. And, and that was our journey, the beginning of our, our journey in, in the Bay Area. Wow. And so you moved to the Bay Area. You were with Sybase, which was at that time, there were two big database companies, Oracle and Sybase. And then from there, you how did you get into this whole, you are Mr. Airline, if somebody wants a, free reward tickets, uh, you know how to get them. But anyway, how did you get to this whole airline and obviously in between an interesting company called Tesla? Yeah, you know, it was very interesting. I left Sybase very soon because Savi and I decided that we wanted to stay in this country and then we want to make our life here because it was so giving to us, right? We made a connection. So we wanted to stay in the United States and we wanted to find the best way to be able to do that and still make good living and growth careers. So I left Sybase for a company called Legato Systems, which was a pioneer in network-based backup recovery software on a Palo Alto. Great gig. It was phenomenal. I was there for seven years, I think, seven, eight years. And Legato got bought out by EMC Corporation. And then I got a new boss whose name is Bill McGuire, who was the CIO. Bill McGuire, one of the best leaders ever. Really? What makes him the best leader ever? Empathy. And being very driven, but having the right level of empathy to create motivation. It's very hard for me to describe, but I always felt that with him, I don't have to worry about anything except doing a phenomenal job because he covered everything else. So he was my boss's boss. I was an underling, so to speak. But when we were at Legato, we had acquired a couple of companies and I got pulled into the integration, systems integration. And so he started observing me and noticing my successes and failures. He would give me guidance on how I could do better. And then just somehow that relationship flipped from a professional relationship to a professional and a personal relationship. We became friends and we both trusted each other. Fast forward from EMC, Bill went and joined a company called Aspid Communications inside San Jose. He brought me in as a director of global applications. It was my first big promotion where I had global responsibility, a very large team. And 
I did well. And then, you know, Aspen got acquired by another company uh, on the East Coast. So consequently, you know, Bill had to leave the company because you can't have two CIOs, right? And usually the company that's acquired doesn't have much say. So Bill left and Aspen was fine for me, but they wanted me to move to Massachusetts. And that was just a no-go for us because our younger daughter, Anjali, was just one year old. We said, there's just no way of moving our family. And then, you know, one fine day in... I think late 2005, and this is December 2005, Bill calls me and he says, Ravi, I said, yeah, Bill, do you want to help start an airline? So, you know, that the gears started working ahead. So I haven't any idea what he's talking about, but it's Bill. So I'm going to listen. And I said, yes, Bill, I would love to. And that airline happened to be Virgin America, a Richard Branson airline that was born in New York but then moved to Burlingame, California, actually right off of Anza Boulevard, off of 101. So I joined as Director of Architecture and Integration. So while I knew systems relatively well, I knew nothing about aviation. I was just a jaded consumer of the industry, and I didn't know anything about the systems. I didn't know anything about weight and balance, safety, dispatch, crew management, manpower planning, reservations. I had zero concept of that, but he trusted me. And that trust in me propelled me to learn. I couldn't let him down and I couldn't let myself down. So I learned and learned and learned. Where I was very lucky is, because I came out right from the cold, I knew nothing, is that Virgin America was a brand new airline that was still seeking the Department of Transportation's permission to fly in America. And the big three, American, United, and Delta, had basically launched lawsuits with the Department of Transportation to stop us from flying. I'm so incredibly indebted to those three airlines for launching these lawsuits because it took one and a half years to resolve that. That gave me enough time to learn. So I will always thank them that inadvertently they actually helped me. So we launched the airline. It was, you know, we built an airline that people love. I wrote a lot of code. It was one of the most fun times of my working experience. Did a lot of work with the Seatback Entertainment, with core systems like Dotcoms. We were also one of the first airlines you know, to adopt a big open source strategy, keep our costs low. It was great. It was a great, great experience. And then I got made a CIO, I think in 2009, if I remember, 2000, yeah, sometime in 2009, because Bill had left. And uh, yeah, so I just carried the torch forth. And... In 2010, I started getting recruited by Tesla and Etihad. Etihad based out of Abu Dhabi. And Savi, the girls, and I visited Abu Dhabi. At that time, you said no, because it was still not very modern. Everything has changed now. So I chose Tesla. I also chose Tesla because naively, I thought Palo Alto is only six miles away from where I live. So I cut my commute short. But <laughs> while the commute was short... The working hours were extraordinarily long. But yeah, I joined as VP of IT applications and I reported to Elon directly. He's a real fun guy. I'm going to come to Elon in a second because that's something we want to know. But you touched on two points because, as I said, a lot of people are looking for inspiration or ideas. Is the role of a mentor, which is Bill McGuire. He played a pretty instrumental role in you, but you also trusting him. 
how important do you think it is for you and for others? And then also, are you mentoring yourself, somebody to pay it forward like Bill did? Yeah, how important is it? It is extraordinarily important to find mentors, but also to find mentors can be your friend. Because to me, those two things are very interchangeable. Because when you're someone's friend, the caring you show for them is uh, on a different level. It's much deeper. Don't get me wrong, mentors are very important, but I think those two worlds have to come together, the emotional connection, but also the professional connection. I think it's very, very important. I know today I hear a lot about people being mentored and seeking mentorship, but when I was growing up, it was never highlighted as you know, a thing to do, but the importance of that is never lost in me. It is as important to have a mentor as it is to be well-networked. It's, both of them are important, but this uh, having a mentor is very important because they can see you from a very different point of view and with a very different lens and aperture that typically when we are working, almost all of us start believing how amazing we are. I certainly did. And that creates a whole bunch of blind spots for you. It's not just about career. It's like, it's how to be a good person, how to take care of your family, how to be great at your job how to treat your teams well. And so you need someone who's been through some of those, maybe not all, but who's been in the trenches with some of those experiences so they can guide you. And it's not always that the guidance is appropriate for you, but at least you have a sounding board and you can exchange thoughts and ideas. So I think it's very important. And yes, I do mentor. To me, it's, uh, it's probably the most important thing I can do at this right young age of 55. If I don't do this now, then I would be not paying it forward. I would not be sharing the knowledge that Jesus I have that might be working to somebody else. So I consider that to be a very important facet of what people in positions of power should do. And it's just very important because the next generation is waiting on the sidelines. You want the next generation to come and take what you do, amplify it, make it better, perhaps even trash it if what you've done is not so good. But you have to bring new people into the fold. And if you don't do that, if you don't bring new people into the fold by mentoring them, then you also can never rise up because you're always in that same layer. And that's my thought. So yeah, I do mentor. I do a lot of mentoring within the corporates, you know, so every role I've had with these big corporates like United and Aer Lingus and, and certainly with Google and with Avis, I do mentoring. But I do a lot of mentoring on the side as well. And it doesn't have to be something written on paper. It's just people ask for help, you help them. Absolutely. You talked about Elon. So as I said up front in the beginning of the conversation, you work for directly and indirectly for two of the more charismatic, some would say even controversial business leaders of our time. Very different. One is a brand maker and others. How do you contrast just in a short way for our listeners? Because you have a unique view, at least you've had, the two styles or two working environments. They both are disruptors. They both are very hungry. Disrupting businesses really excites them at a very deep level. That's what gives them energy. That's, I firmly believe in that. Their approach to dis- disruption is remarkably different. <laughs> there are two polar ends of the spectrum. Richard Branson comes across as very friendly, people person. But he's still a businessman and he's been very successful, you know, and you can look at all the companies he's run or that have a virgin brand associated with them. 
they have nothing to write home about their revenues and profits. They don't make much money. You know, so it's the nature of the world. But Richard Branson has made a lot of money. Okay, so he's very smart. He's a people person. He's also very, very smart and a very astute business person. He licenses his brand. And, and so you've got to learn from that, right? How did he arrive at that magical moment say, okay, I'm Richard Branson. I started off with Virgin Records. I disrupted music in the United Kingdom. In the United Kingdom, music was like deeply embedded, you know, in the, I would say, in the legacy. Branson comes and disrupts that. Then he starts Virgin Atlantic. He disrupts air travel. He gives uh, an experience like none other. So if you flew British Airways or Virgin Atlantic, you'd be flying completely different worlds. Then he disrupted music, Virgin Music. Tried to disrupt trains, Virgin Trains. And then he came to the point where he said, I want to disrupt airlines and aviation in America. But my humble opinion of that disruption, Virgin America in America, was less about Branson's I would say professional strengths in running airlines and more about the brand. Now, if you're a brand new airline coming up in circa 2005, 2006, and you want to, you have to break through the glass. You have the Uniteds, the Deltas, the Americans, the Continentals, all flying high. How do you break through that? If you have an American brand that's freshly created to try and break through that, everyone's going to laugh at you. But if you have Richard Branson and Virgin Group written through that, everyone suddenly gets very serious because he's done it before. So I think that's how he was used. Flip to Elon Musk. I would say just dogged determination. He's probably the most determined human being I have ever encountered. What I like about Elon, and I believe he still does it, and what I always liked about him, he never asked people to do what he was not ready to do himself. That was my take. It's in that book too that just come out. Yes, many people saw him as very gruff, very coarse, but you are taking an electric car company and you want to disrupt automakers. You're not just disrupting automakers, you also have to disrupt the dealership model. The first car company on the planet to sell cars on an e-commerce platform. Who'd have thought he would do that? And I have a great respect for the automobile companies. They make the world move, but they got disrupted by that. So he hit the electric car market way ahead. And with the Model S, started off with the Roadster, which was Martin Everhart and team before Elon took over. But the Model S, the Model Y, the Model X, the Model 3, I mean, just put them all together. Now, the Cybertruck, you can shave your, your face and it. it's, so, it's got such sharp edges. But that is disruption. And of course, the big tractor trailers, right? The Tesla trucks. So he's in pole position. It's just dogged determination. But if that doesn't convince you, look at SpaceX. You know, he poured all his money. You don't need to read any books from Walter Isaacson or anybody. Just look at SpaceX. They disrupted this long, tightly held industry of space launches. And he's disrupted it at a fraction of the cost to the American taxpayer on the one hand and to the global companies who want to launch their satellites in space. That is amazing. I mean, I just don't have any other words to describe. That is amazing. And I got to give it to the guy. Philosophically, I feel that every generation needs women and men, a very handful of them, men who can break apart 
stands for in a way that is sustained and that can take us to the next level. Whatever that next level, but progress. Elon Musk is one of them. I really don't see anybody else being able to compete with him. And now, yes, of course, you hear all this happening with Twitter and X and all. I would just say he doesn't need my advice at all, but he should just figure it out. <laughs> That's all I can say. Because a lot of the amazing stuff he's doing and his teams are doing at SpaceX and Tesla is where I would say the future, our future, all of our futures lie. And so a very impressive man. You know, I mean, I haven't been in touch with him for years. So now coming to the end, Ravi, you obviously have done amazing things. Where do you see your journey going? I mean, you still have many, many chapters of this book. Where do you see your journey going? I think I want to do what I really love doing. I found this a little bit late in life is, and I know it might sound a bit I know, fluffy, but I actually want to help people um, traverse their career journeys in the field of computing and in the field of, I would just say, as you rise up in your career, executive management. So I want to do that. Secondly, I want to teach. I love imparting, I won't say knowledge or gyan. I love sharing stories. And my belief is that stories allow people to see you with a very different point of view. They can see themselves in those stories and how they see themselves. You know, It's all about helping people understand that the world is very big. The opportunities are huge. But if you don't pay attention to yourself and to those opportunities, they will come and go by you so quickly. To me, between those two, if I do that, I'll be very happy. And if my wife allows me to continue riding motorcycles whenever I want to, that would be my ultimate win. So executive coaching, teaching, riding bikes, and who knows what else would come. That's very fascinating. Ravi, if you were to have one or two pieces of advice to the Ravi who just came out of modern school, what would you say to him in about to begin a journey? Work hard, listen, and there's a saying, listen to understand, not to respond. When I was young at that age, I was extremely impetuous, and I would always listen to respond. So listen, be humble, because the world is so big, and at every corner, you will find a person who has done things better than you, who is a better person than you. So be humble. And learn. That's all. And just have fun in life. Just have fun. And it comes down to that. If what are we doing is not contributing to you smiling once or twice a day, then we probably should be doing something else. That's true. So work hard. Listen to understand. I like that. Not just to react. Be humble and have fun. Those are great advice. I wish somebody had given me all those uh, advice. We close, Ravi, with just a quick lightning round of questions. We ask this to all our guests. What is your definition of Indianness, if you were to put it in a few sentences? Culture, Sanskriti, food, cricket, family. That's very good. Very, very good. Okay, final question. One person, not your family, living in India or here that inspires you? S.J. Shankar. Minister of External Affairs. 
We've had several people say that. Wonderful. Ravi, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much. Learned some great stuff about you and thanks for being so open. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners have learned a lot and they will be getting inspired by you. So thank you for taking the time. Sanjay, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for spending some time with me. I appreciate it greatly. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Indianist podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and subscribe to enjoy future inspirational stories.